Welcome back to The Podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Kupferman. On today's episode, we are lucky enough to have Jamie Miller, a bankruptcy attorney from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, on the show to discuss a topic that affects millions of Americans on a personal level, student loans. Earlier this year in January, a Navy veteran had $220,000 of student loans discharged in a bankruptcy, something that's extremely rare in the bankruptcy world. Attorney Miller is going to help us dive into the student loan crisis and why discharging student loans can be such a burdensome process. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We are law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. So, Jamie, thank you so much for joining the show today. We are uh, really glad you're here. Great. Thank you for having me, Jake. Looking forward to spending some time with you today. Absolutely. So before we dive into our topic today, tell our listeners a little bit about um, why you got into bankruptcy, how long you've been practicing, those kinds of things. I've been in bankruptcy for quite some time. Started practicing bankruptcy law in 1991. Got into bankruptcy after I was involved in a failed um, business back in Ohio in the late 80s. I uh, was in a small family business with, with my father, and that business ended up failing. And it was that experience and having to file bankruptcy for that business that really got me interested in helping others that are going through that same process. Wow. So amazing connection to bankruptcy. Um, and obviously bankruptcy is a, a huge topic and you cover both personal and business bankruptcies, but what is it about student loans as it relates to bankruptcies that interests you so much? Well, I think it's the challenge. We do different types of bankruptcy. Chapter 7, which is a discharge of one's debts. Chapter 13, which is a repayment plan. Small business chapter 11s. Most of the time, it's relatively easy to get rid of debt. But there's uh, quite a challenge in getting rid of student loan debt. And with the ever-increasing crisis that we seem to be going through, there's over 44 million people in America that owe student loan debt with a total of 1.6 trillion in debt. So as that crisis of student loan debt continues to become more and more of a problem, it's become more of a focus within our practice. So clearly, I mean, this is a tremendously large issue. It affects people from all different walks of life. So you touched on it a little bit. You mentioned chapter seven, chapter 13. What kind of debts can ordinarily be discharged in a bankruptcy and what are the mechanics of that process? Yeah, so the, the most common form of bankruptcy is a Chapter 7, which is a discharge of one's debt, where we file a bankruptcy and request that debts be discharged through the bankruptcy process. Generally, in bankruptcy, we can get rid of uh, medical bills, credit card bills, utility bills, payday loans. We help a lot of small businesses get out of different types of business debt. And when we do a Chapter 7, we're able to wipe out all of that debt. In 2005, the bankruptcy laws changed, and we had the what's referred to as the BAP-CPA, um, really the Bankruptcy Reform Act of the century, which set a means test in place, which says you can only file Chapter 7 and discharge your debts if you have a certain income level. So for those people that are under that income level, we're able to do a Chapter 7. If they're above that income level, 
it generally will force us into a repayment plan, which is often referred to as a chapter 13. Amazing background. And we're going to dive into a little bit about how those both relate to student loans in bankruptcies. But you mentioned that this is an issue that affects you know, more than 44 million Americans. Um, and it usually disproportionately affects younger people, which makes sense both mathematically, they've had less time to pay it off. But also statistically, it seems as though younger people are, are just taking on more student loan debt. Do you think that's the reality? And do you think that skew towards the younger population is contributing to this problem? Younger people are not educated enough on debt when they're going into college. And at the time, someone 17 or 18 years old, they can't possibly understand the impact of long-term debt and how it's going to impact their future. You know, if someone comes out of undergrad or some sort of professional degree with $100,000 in debt, that's life-changing debt that is owed that's going to impact them for many years to come. And so we need to do a lot more consumer education on the front end so that people knowingly enter into those student loan agreements, knowing exactly how it's going to impact their future. That's a great point. And we are going to touch a little bit on how to properly educate the population in a little bit. But I want to turn briefly to what distinguishes student loans from ordinary debts in a discharge in bankruptcy. So there is a case, the Brunner case, that establishes a three-part test for when student loan debt can and cannot be discharged into bankruptcy. So tell our listeners a little bit about what is it that distinguishes student loans from ordinary debts in a discharge chapter seven bankruptcy? Right, so when someone files a bankruptcy, as I said earlier, you can discharge lots of debt in different categories. But the subsection of the bankruptcy code under 523 sets forth about 12 exceptions to discharge. So you can't discharge debts that were incurred by fraud or malice. You can't discharge debts. If you're in an automobile accident and you were under the influence of alcohol, you can't discharge that type of debt. So what Congress, has, what Congress did in about 1987 with the Bankruptcy Reform Act, they put the exception to discharge under 523.8, accepting student loans from discharge. What that means is when someone files a Chapter 7 bankruptcy and they go through the bankruptcy process, at the end of that process, unless they've taken some sort of action to discharge those debts, those debts will not be discharged in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. So you say there, there has to be some kind of proactive measure taken by the person filing bankruptcy. As it relates to student loans, what does that proactive measure look like? There's a, a, um, a process within the bankruptcy court. So after one files a bankruptcy, if you want to be heard on any sort of objection or matter outside the four corners of your bankruptcy petition, you need to file an adversary proceeding. So an adversary proceeding is a separate complaint in the bankruptcy court that you would file that seeks a discharge of your student loans in this instance. So you may file it against the Department of Education or Sally May or ECMC or whoever your student loan lender is, they would become the defendant in the adversary proceeding and you would go through the process of discharging the debts through that adversary proceeding. So it, it seems as though you're filing a bankruptcy and you're trying to discharge what could be, as you mentioned, $100,000 or more 
of student loans, it seems as though that could be a really prohibitive barrier to even initiating that proceeding. Yes, um, and punitive um, sometimes, as we'll talk uh, in a little bit in this, in this Rosenberg case that we're going to get to. Generally, when someone comes into our office and files a Chapter 7, we'll talk about the cost of filing the Chapter 7, specifically excluded from our fee agreements with our clients is the cost of filing an adversary to discharge student loans. As you know, litigation can be very expensive. And so to hire a lawyer or to you know, hire someone from our firm, it requires the lawyer to file a complaint, to do discovery, to take depositions, to hire an expert. Talk about the Brunner test, which is the uh, primary test that the courts are going to use to determine whether one's debt is dischargeable in a bankruptcy. And one of those prongs is how is the debtor's position going to change in the future that is going to perhaps allow them to pay the student loans in the future that they can't do it now. And sometimes you need to bring an expert in to, to testify, a, a vocational expert of some sort that can testify as to what the debtor's future earning capacity is. And that in itself can be $2,500. So with all these massive barriers in mind and, and knowing, you know, as you mentioned, litigation and hiring firms is never cheap. But especially when you are in a situation where you are filing a bankruptcy, you provided a, a perfect segue. Uh, sometime after we finish this recording, you should consider a career in podcasting, maybe. So you mentioned the Brunner test, which is a case from 1987 that establishes a three-pronged test that courts use to determine whether or not somebody should or should not be able to discharge their student loan debt in a bankruptcy. So very briefly, just so the listeners have a background, the three prongs of that test are essentially whether or not the debtor can maintain what the courts call a minimal standard of living, whether or not there are additional circumstances that will persist throughout the life of the loan, and whether or not the debtor has made a good faith effort to repay the loans. So in my research, I found that ordinarily courts are not very sympathetic under this test. And it seems as though it's very hard to discharge that student loan debt in a bankruptcy. In your experience, has that been the case or are courts a little more lenient than some might believe? Courts are not lenient at all when it comes to discharging debts in bankruptcy or through an adversary process. The Brunner test came in 1987. And before the Brunner test, the bankruptcy code indicated that you can't discharge debts because unless there's a showing of undue hardship. So there were a couple years in there where we didn't know what undue hardship really meant. And then the Brunner test came along and helped us to define that. And so the first prong of the test where the debtor cannot maintain a minimal standard of living if they're forced to pay their student loans. And keep in mind, it's not just the debtor. So it's the debtor, the debtor's family, the debtor's people they're residing with, their kids. So it applies to their entire family unit. And then the second prong of the test is, are there additional circumstances that are likely to persist for a significant period of time during the repayment plan? So essentially, the first prong analyzes where they're at today. The second prong analyzes where they're going to be in the future. And then the third step of it that the court will consider is whether or not the debtor has made a good faith effort over the course of the loan to repay those loans. 
you mentioned right off the top, courts are, are usually really strict with this interpretation and have been. Uh, but that, as you mentioned before, that leads us to this Rosenberg case from January of this year. And just to give the listeners a little bit of background, in this case, the petitioner, who is a 46-year-old Navy veteran and a graduate of the Cardozo Law School in New York, was able to have $220,000 of student loan debts discharged in a bankruptcy proceeding. So first, Jamie, tell our listeners why this ruling is, is such a big deal in the bankruptcy world. It comes down to the, really the second prong in the Brunner test, which is generally the question that debtors trying to discharge student loans have the most challenging time overcoming. And that's, are there additional circumstances that, or will the circumstances persist over a, a significant period of time during the repayment plan? that will make it a challenge for them to repay the debt in the future. And so that one's a challenge to come by and to overcome because you know, the future is so broad. Bankruptcy court in that analysis you know, could ask and could pass judgment on debtors. Well, you know, in the instant Rosenberg case, who is a, he's a lawyer, but he's chosen to um, work in a field outside the law. And at the time he brought this case to discharge his student loans, he was only making, not only, but he was making $38,000 a year. And other courts um, that would decide this type of case may say, Mr. Rosenberg, you know, you've chosen a job at $38,000 a year. Yes, at $38,000 a year, it's going to be a challenge to pay off $220,000 in student loans. But why don't you go back and why don't you go get a job in a law firm or figure out a way to make more money. And it's those types of judgments that have effectively made it impossible to overcome that second prong because of the potential hypotheticals that the courts can throw out there and pass judgment on people that are truly having a hard time getting rid of their debt. In situations where courts are passing judgment on petitioners, which doesn't seem to be the case here, it can be really hard to overcome that prong, but it seems as though this particular judge in this case was a little bit more sympathetic to Rosenberg's argument. And as you mentioned, part of that analysis is, is that whether or not um, a good faith effort has been made, it, it seems totally unfair that a, a court could pass judgment on a petitioner given their life circumstances without really providing a full analysis of their life. But Judge Morris, and who is the, the judge in this particular case, said that the interpretations of the Brunner test had made it effectively impossible to discharge student loan debt in a bankruptcy. Do you think this opinion changes that and, and makes it a little bit more possible? I think it definitely opens the door. And I really think that the bankruptcy courts, especially in light of what our country is going through now in the COVID-19 process, is going to open up the bankruptcy courts to really consider, especially that second prong as to what's happening in people's in the future. And just the punitive nature, and, I, and Judge Moore specifically lashed out at other bankruptcy court decisions, showing that the, the punitive nature and the thought among bankruptcy lawyers and among debtors that it's impossible to get rid of student loans and also the cost of discharging student loans has created a, an uneven playing field in that debtors aren't even bringing cases to discharge their debts 
because they know for a fact that the likelihood of getting those debts discharged in bankruptcy, the student loan debt discharged in bankruptcy is slim to none. And I think what Judge Morris is doing is sending a message out to other bankruptcy judges. And I would think that Judge Morris was so firm in her criticism of the current student loan laws that she's inviting an appeal and hoping to get this up to a higher court so that this Brunner test can either be expanded or be considered in a light more favorable to the debtor. So I wanna touch on a word that you have used a few times, which is punitive, that the old interpretations of the Brunner test can be punitive against those trying to discharge their debts. And also that Judge Morris sort of, without saying the word punitive, calls it a punitive process. And you've also mentioned, you know, as we move forward in this new COVID-19 world, it seems inevitable that there are going to be more financial hardships, whether it be because the economy enters a recession or because unemployment filings are at an all-time high. Uh, It seems a little inevitable that these types of conversations are going to persist. So as we start to look ahead in the world of bankruptcy um, as it pertains to student loans, during the presidential campaigns, there's been all kinds of conversations about this too. Do you think that generally the needle is starting to move to be less punitive as it relates to discharging student loan debts? I think we're getting there. I think just as we arrived at the real estate and the mortgage crisis during 2008, we are quickly approaching a crisis with student loan defaults. Over the the last several years, we've tried different programs, income-based repayment plans and income contingent repayment plans that the Department of Education has put out there with the hopes of helping debtors, uh, those with high student loans, to come up with a lower monthly payment. But the nature of the income-based repayment plans is that it's helping the impoverished, the very low-income people that can get income-based repayment plans of zero. But for those that have advanced degrees or are making higher incomes, the income-based repayment plan doesn't help them, and it doesn't help them overcome that first question in the Brunner test of, are you maintaining a minimal standard of living if you have to pay back your student loan? I would say that as the crisis continues to loom, and as we dive deeper into the crisis, that there's going to have to be movement on figuring out a way to release people from the critical amount of student loan debt that they owe. Well, absolutely. And and you mentioned an income-based repayment plan as one of these solutions that has been discussed before. And and I think it's worth noting that President Trump has proposed a 12.5% flat income-based repayment plan, where if you have student loans, you would just pay 12.5% no matter what. But at the same time, there are people on the Democratic side of this particular election that have proposed alternatives. So for example, Elizabeth Warren has proposed a complete overhaul of the student loan process and the bankruptcy process. Um, And she has actually proposed that the federal government codify the ability to discharge student loan debt in a bankruptcy. Um, And since then, Joe Biden has actually endorsed that idea. And given he's the front runner and going to be the Democratic nominee, that's a, a big deal. Do you think that because of the political attention this issue is getting that is going to expedite this process? Or do you think it's just already sort of the the fabric of the conversation? 
I think it's part of the fabric of the conversation. I think, you know, four years ago when Hillary Clinton was running for office, student loan was a hot topic and something they're giving great consideration to. You know, it takes us back to the history of dischargeability of student loan. Prior to 1997, you could discharge student loans if the student loan was older than seven years and you were making reasonable efforts to pay back those student loans. And I think Elizabeth Warren is looking at that type of procedure to try to get rid of student loans. If someone has made every effort and every attempt to pay back their student loans, they're not making any leeway. It would seem like a seven year time frame is something that would be a good gauge. And I think that's the direction that they're heading. And another really important thing that I know President Trump is looking at when it comes to reforming student loans, and I know that certainly Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, they're all trying to make the process more affordable. And uh, one of the most challenging things that we spoke about previously is that with the current system, you know, if someone's filing bankruptcy and they're lower income or even higher income, being able to spend $5,000 or $7,000 on a on a lawyer to discharge student loans, that in itself is punitive because they may be able to afford the bottom line barrier of getting to the bankruptcy court to discharge those debts. And they may very well have a great case at discharging their student loans through bankruptcy. But if the price and the cost of doing it, because the requirements of meeting the Brunner test is really challenging, pro se debtor can't do it, a debtor who doesn't have good counsel can't do it. And there's got to be a better way to do it. And it's got to be some sort of test that is affordable and gives a debtor a really good recent shot at knowing what the result's going to be if they try to discharge those student loans. Bearing in mind what you've just said and knowing that this process has to change, it has to evolve, if there's going to be any type of equity in, on this issue. You mentioned that you, in your opinion, you think that Judge Morris and her, her opinion in this particular case, in the Rosenberg case, has invited an appeal. So given how powerful her opinion was that she wrote, what's your prediction if you had to make one as to what happens on appeal and this goes up? Do you think it's more likely that um, it could make its way to the Supreme Court and be ruled on there? Or do you think it's more likely that Congress would need to step in and provide some sort of relief on this issue first? Or do you think it's some combination thereof? From a public policy standpoint, we've had the Brunner test since 1997. There's so few cases, uh, adversary for proceedings filed in our country that the Brunner test has never made it to the Supreme Court. And you think it would have. And I don't think this Rosenberg case is the case that's going to go to the Supreme Court. But I do think that Judge Morris was sending a message that if we don't do something on the federal level to change the laws in the bankruptcy code about dischargeability of student loans, that the courts on their own are going to modify the Brunner test in the best way that they can which I think is awesome. But the problem is it's applicability across all the districts across the country. So you may, just where the Rosenberg case in New York, have a great chance of discharging your student loans. 
but you could live in Utah or you could live in Texas. And that same debtor, same circumstances, same student loans may not have a chance of getting that student loan discharged. And that's why I think there's going to be a national call for total change of the bankruptcy code or of the Education Act to somehow make these student loans discharged in either an administrative way or through the bankruptcy courts in a, a way that just makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I mean, based on everything that, that you're saying, it certainly seems as though we're reaching a boiling point where something has to give in, in a certain direction and action has to be taken by somebody. So I, I want to turn very briefly to how this is going to change given our current circumstances during COVID-19. So there was an article published in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago that you actually shared with me, which I'm so grateful for, that said that there's an inevitable flood of bankruptcy filings that are going to come, which makes sense given uh, how many millions of Americans have filed for bankruptcy. So you know, do you think that bankruptcy attorneys and the bankruptcy courts are prepared for that? And how does the student loan crisis factor into that determination? Yeah, I mean, it's a, that's a great question. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bankruptcy lawyer. The, and, I, and I say this honestly, our business is successful in good times and in, and in bad times. The last thing I want to look at is for a recession or worse, and the thought that somehow this is going to benefit bankruptcy lawyers, because it does indirectly. But the bottom line is, <clears throat> we're all much better off in a, a better economy. But with the recession, and this Wall Street Journal article that you're talking about, they said the number of bankruptcy filings that's going to occur is either going to be like a tsunami or it's going to be like drinking water from a firehouse. And so we're going to see the number of bankruptcy filings go up dramatically in the coming months and years, similar to what we saw in 2008. My concern is, a lot of reason for people wanting to file for bankruptcy because the majority of debt that people have and the majority of debt that is really holding them back from being productive consumers is student loan debt. And even though that number of filings is going to go up, the ability of debtors and individuals to discharge student loans is not going to really improve at this time unless we get that change in Congress sooner than later. So you've mentioned you think it's holding people back from being effective consumers, that student loan debt in particular, I'm sorry, is holding people back from being effective consumers. So if we change the equation on this and we make it more equitable and make it a more realistic possibility to have your student loans either discharged or refinanced, do you think that could sway the economy? Do you think that could have um, a particularly large effect on how people uh, take place in, in the modern economy? Yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you from experience, I can tell you from lawyers that work in my office that have gone through law school that have $300,000 of student loan debt or doctors that have 400 or a half a million dollars of student loan debt. There's $1.6 trillion in debt now but there's 44 million Americans out there with student loan debt. I'm a firm believer that if you can pay back your student loan debt, you should pay back your student loan debt. 
but if the student loan debt has impacted your ability to be a consumer in a consumer-driven economy, then it's going to have a negative impact on the economy as a whole. I'll give you an example. Someone has $100,000 in student loan debt. Their debt-to-income ratio on their credit report is really high, so they're not going to qualify to purchase a car. They're not going to be able to qualify to find their American dream and, and purchase that home. Their ability to purchase a home, consumer goods, real estate, that's going to allow them to be productive consumers in our economy. And I'm a firm believer that if we are able to ease the glut of loans to those 44 million people, that it's going to be one of those items that our Congress and that we all need to look to that's going to be a very important step to overcoming this hopefully short recession that I think we're going to end up hitting. That's really powerful um, to hear you say that and, and to think about how profound an impact this could really have on the economy. As we start to wrap up here, I want to circle back to something you said very close to the beginning, which is that the average person, whether at 17, 18 years old, and admittedly, I was one of those people who had no awareness at 17, what going to college means and how much that really costs. But what's the one thing or, or handful of things that you wish young people knew about student loans in particular that they typically don't or isn't properly conveyed as they go into college and as they enter the economy as young consumers? The most important thing is that there's two types of student loans. There's federal student loans and there's private student loans. The federal student loans, that has to be the mental cap that you think about and use for funding when you go to school. Because with federal student loans, the chances that the federal government is going to be there to do something to back you up, to help with income-based repayment plans, income contingent repayment plans. The Department of Education is doing a great job of doing all they can to help lower interest rates, to consolidate, to really help people. If there's a way to manage the debt, the federal uh, loans, there's the capability of doing that. The silent killer when it comes to student loans is private student loans. So when anybody goes to college and they fill out those FAFSA forms, the FAFSA form is going to tell them how much they qualify for, for federal student loans. But oftentimes, the amount that they qualify for isn't the total amount of need that they need to go to college. So then they take a step and they go to Discover and they go to Bank of America and they get private student loans at interest rates that are comparable to credit cards. Private student loans, which are non-dischargeable in bankruptcy, similar to the way federal student loans are, is a huge problem. These uh, private student loan companies act in a predatory manner. People don't understand the difference between a federal and a private student loan. And my greatest words of wisdom is if you have to take out student loans, follow what your FAFSA form tells you and try to do everything you can if you need to borrow money to only borrow federal funds. That's powerful advice. I mean, I think uh, any young person applying to college would benefit from hearing that information. Um, and, and as we close out here, I mean, as this all circles back together and you, and you talk about federal versus private student loans, from the perspective of a bankruptcy attorney, obviously those two things are different, 
But when you you look at this Rosenberg case and you talk about the Brunner test, does the the federal versus private that distinction come into play as we move forward and Congress takes action? Could those two different types of loans really be viewed differently, or do you think it's more likely and it might be more successful if Congress and or the courts viewed them together as we we look for them to take action and advance this issue? That's a great question. And if we look at where we're at today, one of the reasons it's so hard to discharge student loans and bankruptcy, the federal student loans, is that first prong in the Brunner test says you're not able to maintain a minimal standard of living. If people do the income-based repayment plans, it's hard to meet that first prong. Because if your income is low enough, you could have an income-based repayment of zero, which is great, but that lump sum of uh, debt that you owe in student loans is still impacting your credit because it's impacting your debt to income ratio. So getting credit in the future is a challenge. So I don't want to paint a rosy picture and say, yeah, get your federal student loans. Everything's great. You know, stay away from private. We need to find a solution that is going to encompass helping people with get lower student loan debt or have lower student loan debt or figure out a way uh, to discharge that student loan debt if people have made reasonable efforts to and in good faith to pay back that debt. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for this amazing wealth of information you've provided. I think you know, our listeners hopefully can use this information and start to follow this issue that's inevitably going to become part of the public debate. We at The Podvocate are so grateful for your time and just can't thank you enough for, for taking part of this, especially during this crazy COVID time. Thank you, Jake. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to spend some time with you this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Have a great day and, and thanks again for listening to The Podvocate. Thank you. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Alritz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman, and our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing us the resources and support to make this show possible, and thanks to our predecessors, the Dialogue DeNovo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.